Good morning, Providence Church, and a very happy Sabbath to you. And as we continue in these strange times as a church and as a country, may we be ever mindful that our mission has stayed the same, right? The great commission that our Lord gives us at the end of Matthew's gospel to go and make disciples, to shed abroad his name, and to, to point people to the one true king. And while uh, it's difficult, no doubt, that this time is also one in which people's hearts are open, and I think a real opportunity for the church to show uh, that we have this very stable anchor in the person of Jesus. You know, yesterday I was talking to someone who, a uh, middle-aged couple, who said, you know, I'm, I'm sorry we haven't been able to make it to church because I've been looking after my aging parents. And I said, no, that, that's exactly uh, what, what you should be doing. In other words, we want to reiterate that all of us have different obligations and duties at this time, and we should obey our conscience. We should fulfill uh, the roles that we have and do that in a way that keeps uh, everyone safe in the way that loves our neighbor. Since March, when we learned about this, that those principles principles we see laid down very clearly in scripture that we're to honor uh, our, our, those around us as family members, to take care of them, to love our neighbors, to obey our conscience. And I do pray uh, that every member of this church and all the guests uh, feel liberty in their conscience to do, uh, the, to do what God has, has, has called them to do now without uh, feeling the need to apologize, but rather to say this is the right thing to do. By way of a more conventional announcement that we have this upcoming Saturday, August 15th, a men's breakfast from 8 to 9.30. It will be outdoors in our tent. Uh, but if you would, if you'd be so kind to email Pastor Joe, uh, just so we know how much breakfast to order. So again, that's uh, Saturday, August 15th, 8 to 9.30 in the morning. I very much look forward to that. So we'll turn it over to Pastor Ian now, who will call us to worship. Church, good morning. Let's remember the love of the Lord together as we sing of this magnificent, marvelous, matchless love. Magnificent, marvelous, matchless love, too vast and astounding to tell. Forever existing in worlds above, now offered and given to all. Oh, fountain of beauty eternal, the Father, the Spirit, the Son, sufficient and endlessly generous, magnificent, marvelous, matchless love. Creations brimming with thankfulness, the mountains exultantly stand. The seasons rejoice in your faithfulness, all life is sustained by your hand. You crown every meadow with color, you paint every shade in the sky. Each day the dawn wakes as an encore. Magnificent, marvelous, matchless love. How great, how sure His love endures forevermore. Magnificent, marvelous, matchless love. What great. That you entered our brokenness You came in the fullness of time How far we had fallen from righteousness But not from the mercies of Christ Your cross is our door to redemption Your death is our fullness of life That day the dawn as a flood Magnificent, marvelous, matchless love. How great, how sure His love endures forevermore. Magnificent, marvelous, matchless love. 
us to infinite eyes Could anything sever or take us from Magnificent moments There's just look how great see preserved in his word scripture over time we have it's really remarkable when you think about it we have a testimony of of one this john who who walked closely with christ three three and a half years and testified to all of christ's teaching his ministry and the events that occurred in his life we have that and the way that that john here that we'll read together speaks of this is is remarkable this is not an esoteric mythical uh, fairy tale, but one that is concrete, evidenced, and witnessed by this man, and not just him alone, but so many. So as we, as we uh, recite this scripture together, let's consider not only the testimony of what it says and the, the, the sure nature of it, but also the truth by which we are reading about this God and how he's revealed himself in the Son, the Lord Jesus. So let's uh, there are some slides where it, uh, it'll say leader or all, so let's, let's participate in this together. 1 John 1 through a few verses in chapter 2. John writes, That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we looked upon, we have touched with our hands, concerning the word of life. The life was made manifest, and we have seen it. And testify to it and proclaim to you the eternal life which was with the Father and was made manifest to us. That which, was, which we have seen and heard we proclaim to you so that you too may have fellowship with us. And indeed our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. And we are writing these things so that our joy may be complete. And this is the message we have heard from him and proclaim to you. Let's read, church. That God is light, and in him is no darkness at all. If we say we have fellowship with him while we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus his son cleanses us from all sin. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar, and his word is not in us. My little children, I'm writing these things to you so you may not sin, but if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. He is the propitiation for our sins, not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. So beloved, as we continue our time of praising this God, may we present our confession before him knowing that he is faithful and just to forgive us and to cleanse us from every unrighteousness. This is the testimony we have seen, we have heard. We now have fellowship with Christ and the Father because of what he's done. Thank you, Lord. For what? We have done and left undone. We fall on your countless mercies. For 
sins that are known and those unknown we call on your name so holy for envy and pride for closing our eyes for scorning our very neighbor in thought word and deed we failed you our king how Good morning, Providence family and friends who are listening to this. Um, please join me as we go to our Heavenly Father in prayer. I'm going to begin with a few verses from Psalm 118. Give thanks to the Lord, for he is good, for his loving kindness is everlasting. Oh, let Israel say, his loving kindness is everlasting. Oh, let the house of Aaron say, 
his loving kindness is everlasting. Oh, let those who fear the Lord say, his loving kindness is everlasting. This is a day which the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. You are my God, and I give thanks to you. You are my God, I extol you. Give thanks to the Lord, for he is good, for his loving kindness is everlasting. Heavenly Father, we come to you so thankful and grateful that your love is everlasting and that your loving kindness, we can't even imagine how great and deep your love is for us, Father. Lord, we pray that we give you the glory that you deserve, that we glorify you in word, action, and deed, Father. We praise you for your grace and your mercy for us, Lord. We thank you for the heart you have given us, granting us a desire to please you and obey you um, out of love. Help us to reverently fear you, Father, because of your power and, and your, and your um, omniscience and omnipotence, Father God. And Lord, let each day that we walk be a testimony to you, not working for men, but working for you, Father. Let your kingdom come and let your will be done on this earth. And thank you for giving us the opportunity to participate in your will. Father, we thank you for your son, Jesus. We thank you that you sent him to earth to do what we couldn't do, and that is to save ourselves because of our sin and our separation from you. We thank you that, Jesus, you bore our sin, taking it to the cross, and three days after your death, you were resurrected, opening heaven's door for us, for those who accept you as our Lord and Savior. Jesus, thank you for teaching us the humility about how you lived your life, about encouraging us, about teaching us what it is to love your Father and our Father with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength, and teaching us how to love your neighbor. We praise you for all you do, and let, let, us, let our lives be a small reflection of your Holy Spirit living inside of us. And I pray today for those listening, Lord, that even within our congregation, that there might be one heart today who chooses to say, Jesus, you are my Lord and Savior, and as eternity sealed. And let that be the prayer for all churches throughout the world as Christians gather today, Lord. We also come to you, Father, with specific requests for a congregation. We lift up Jan and Garris Lazuski in the passing last Sunday of Jan's dad, George, Lord. We pray that you comfort Jan and her family. We pray as they, we grieve with them, we mourn with them as we're called to do, and let all the plans for his celebration of life come together. I think about the Watkins family, Barzowski's family too, who've lost parents over the last couple of months, Lord. And we lift up those in our congregation who are praying for healing of their fathers and mothers from heart issues, from battling cancer and for the salvation of, of the parents that uh, raised us for the Johnsons and the Whitemans and the Molinas and the Berkheimers, Father God, we lift them up. We ask for your healing, but more important for those to be saved who may not know you, Lord. I lift up the staff, Lord, the wonderful staff we had. Thank you for blessing our church with them. Give them wisdom as we approach the school year and the plans that they'll be making. I pray for the elders, too, that we can make wise decisions for you. We lift up the high school graduates who will be celebrating as they are about to leave and take their first step, their next big step in their lives, Lord, as they go off to college, many via remote, um, some far, some near, Lord. I pray for them to have the courage to continue to live out their faith on campus, Lord, and you surround them with godly brothers and sisters in Christ who can guide them and encourage them. We lift up those who are battling COVID-19 in our congregation or have been affected by it economically, Lord. Give them comfort in knowing that you will provide for them. And we lift up the healthcare workers, first responders, policemen, firefighters, Lord, who are protecting us from this disease, Lord. But we know that you're in control, Lord. Uh, let's just trust in your plan for our lives. And Lord, I pray for our country, our leaders, and, and globally, Lord. We know the only true healing comes through the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, Lord. So help us to help hearts turn there, Lord, and, and um, 
trusting your plan to bring this country closer to you, Father. I lift up Austin's preaching in a few minutes, Lord, and thank you for all you've provided to this church. Help us to continue to be generous givers to you, Lord. And um, we thank you, Father, for all you've done in our lives. We love you and we praise you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. I'll now be reading our scripture, which will be continuing our study of Luke. So if you are able, if you could please stand in uh, reverence for God's word, I'll be reading from Luke chapter 6, the first 11 verses, and I'll be reading from the New American Standard Bible. Luke chapter 6, starting in verse 1. Now it happened that he was passing through some grain fields on a Sabbath, and the disciples were picking the heads of grains, rubbing them in their hands, and eating the grains. But some of the Pharisees said, Why do you do what is not lawful on the Sabbath? And Jesus, answering them, said, Have you not even read what David did when he was hungry, he and those who were with him, how he entered the house of God and took and ate the consecrated bread, which is not lawful for any to eat except the priests alone, and gave it to his companions? And he was saying to them, The Son of Man is the Lord of the Sabbath. On another Sabbath, he entered the synagogue and was teaching. And there was a man whose right hand was withered. The scribes and the Pharisees were watching him closely to see if he healed on the Sabbath, so that they might find reason to accuse him. But he knew what they were thinking, and he said to the man with the withered hand, Get up and come forward. And he came up, and Jesus said to them, I ask you, is it lawful to do good or to do harm on the Sabbath, to save a life or to destroy it? After looking around at them all, he said to him, stretch out your hand. And he did so, and his hand was restored. But they themselves were filled with rage and discussed together what they might do to Jesus. Thanks be to God. Well, we begin today with, I think, returning to a classic objection to following uh, any religion, and that is uh, people are opposed to rules. So you'll talk to somebody who's not particularly religious, and they'll say, well, the last thing I need is to join some movement where I'm going to be bogged down with a bunch of laws and rules. And when people make that kind of objection, we'd say, yes, a lot of the world religions are of man-made origin and of man-made rules, but there's also something else smuggled in there. There's a certain understanding of what rules and laws are. And the reason why this is important today is you'll notice that it's right in the center of the debate between Jesus and his key opponents, the Pharisees and the scribes of the Pharisees, a subset of the Pharisees. Notice, right, in verse 2, right, they're discussing something, whether or not it's lawful to do on the Sabbath. Or how about in verse 4? Again, that language comes up as Jesus references a story long ago that David did something that was not lawful, or did he? Then again in verse 9 of the reading, right, I ask, is it lawful? So the question emerges, that is, if you do, you know, a Bible reading plan in a year, you're going to see a lot on the law and laws and certain parameters, expectations of how God's people are to, to behave. And so in one sense, it's not as if uh, being a Christian, you're an antinomian, that is that there's no rules and no laws whatsoever. But I think what we need to understand today is that rules and laws are very good things when they come from God and we understand their spirit over their letter. And so we'll notice that there's really two different conceptions at play here, right? We've all heard that uh, differentiation between the spirit and the letter. In fact, St. Paul uses it himself, right? So what we mean by that is that laws can be followed uh, down uh, to the very strict word-by-word -word adherence. In other words, it's not really something that the law reflects. It's just about obedience to the exact letter of the law. But we say that's not really the best example or the best way we can understand laws, that most would say really laws are about the, the spirit or the intent behind them, right? That it's, it's about the, the overarching principle. You can think of 
basically any law, take, take a speed limit, right? I mean, is the idea with the speed limit to say, well, I must go 35 and not a mile over, and I know that that's being policed, and I just, my whole life on the roads is just keeping my eye on that number. You say, that's really thinking about the letter of the law. Well, we say, well, no, we, we don't think speed limits are really about that. That speed limits have the principle behind it of keeping people safe. And so it's not, you know, so much, well, look at that person, he went 36, or that person went 37, but rather to say there's a, there's a good, honoring, life-giving principle behind that kind of law. Now, how much more so do we see with the laws of God? You know, it's enough that in our own earthly sphere that we have a whole field of study devoted to this. It's what's classically been called jurisprudence. Uh, that is legal theory. Uh, that is the idea that we all know that we can't exist without laws. The question is, where do those laws come from? What are they about? Uh, what do we, how do we enforce them? Say, all these are valid and important questions before we just dismiss laws outright or make these kind of, you know, very quick statements about rules and being bogged down by them. You know, I think in our own country's founding that this emerges if you study uh, someone like Baron de Montesquieu, who I'm told is the most cited and read uh, by our founding fathers. I mean, Montesquieu's famous book is called The Spirit of the Laws. He's really interested in what gave rise to the laws and what then do those laws reinforce. In other words, he would say that there are certain virtues that we want to capture in our laws and we want the laws to reinforce those virtues. Is something like that going on? And we'll see very clearly that there's two concepts of God's law at play in this passage. That on the one side, you have the Pharisees. And the Pharisees really like the system of the law, the letter of the law. It's a means by which that they can uh, impose their system, if you will. On the other hand, there's Jesus, who seems to understand God's law as being a gracious gift to help us live in a way that allows us to flourish before God. And we'll kind of take these in turn and notice that it's about a particular part of the law here in Luke chapter 6. That what's at stake in these first 11 verses, we have two disputes, but the dispute is really about the same matter. That is on the Sabbath. Say, what was the Sabbath? The Sabbath was to be the one day of the week where God's people were to think about him, right, to, to, to sanctify it, to be marked off as holy, to think about God in their own position. And the reason why it is so prominent is it because, it's because it's the fourth commandment. So when Moses went up on Mount Sinai some 1,400 years before the time of Jesus, right, he brings down the tablets of the law, commandment four, so here's Exodus chapter 20 and from verse 8. God tells his people... Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, you or your son or your daughter or your male servant or your female servant or your livestock or the sojourner who is within your gates. For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, the sea and all that is in them, and rested on the seventh day. Therefore, the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. That the Sabbath day features prominently in God's word precisely because it's in the Decalogue. That is, it's the fourth of the Ten Commandments. And the Pharisees and Jesus are going to get in a big dispute, a legal dispute, a matter of jurisprudence, if you will, jurisprudence over the divine law, and we'll see which way wins out. So first, the Pharisees approach. That the Pharisees think God's law are to be, be discussed and parsed out and policed. That it's about the finite details of the letter. And in so doing, they're able to impose their system, and this is their understanding of it. How do we know that this is their approach? I mean, you put yourself in this passage, and I think I was kind of struck right away at what they must have been doing. So Jesus' disciples, this is on a Saturday, the Jewish Sabbath, and the disciples are out in some grain field, and uh, plucking the heads of grain. Now, do you ever think of, say, how did the Pharisees uh, pick up on this? I mean, they must have been watching. It must be a result of, as we've been reading, that Jesus has made a splash on the scene and has, um, you know, created enough of a disturbance that the Pharisees are watching. So you can imagine they're watching him to make a mistake. 
They're kind of looking out there, you know, peering over their shoulders, say, let's see, let's just see if, you know, they're, they're going to do something that's unlawful on the Sabbath. Does that person look, let's see if that person goes 36 instead of 35. And then we get it more explicitly in verse 7, don't we? Here we have another situation, the man in the withered hand. You notice what are the Pharisees and the scribes doing? They're watching him. They're going to see whether or not they can catch him on a technicality, that they're all about uh, kind of looking over the shoulder, policing God's laws. And you know what's more striking about the first part of our story is that it actually wasn't illegal to pluck grain from another person's field. So you might say, well, is this about stealing? You say, no, it's not stealing at all. In fact, God, in his gracious giving of the law, uh, said that a person could pluck grain. That is, if you were hungry, you could pluck the, the heads of the grain and eat them. You can read about that in Deuteronomy chapter 23, verses 24 and 25. So the issue here, again, isn't, isn't that they're, they're doing with, this, with the grain. It's that they're doing it on the Sabbath that what the Pharisees do is they take something that's initially about God's provision, that is being able to, to pluck your heads of grain if you're, you're hungry, and they've taken it, right, and they've made it in a part of their system, and they're watching to see if Jesus and his disciples will, uh, you know, make those kinds of mistakes. And you say, well, we really uh, don't like people like that, do we? And that's precisely what the Pharisees are doing. Now, what is the larger, what is their method of jurisprudence, if you will? We could say that one thing they prize is legalism. And the best definition of legalism I can give is when we make laws in order to protect laws. So when the law is laid down, we then say, well, since that's the law, let's create another parameter around that to make sure that primary law is not uh, not." Um, broken. So here's a great example from the book of Jeremiah. Again, this is a 6th century text, but listen to what the prophet Jeremiah says regarding this issue. Thus says the Lord, take care for the sake of your lives and do not bear a burden on the Sabbath day or bring it in by the gates of Jerusalem. And do not carry a burden out of your houses on the Sabbath or do any work, but keep the Sabbath day holy as I have commanded your fathers. And it goes on a bit from there. So that leaves us with the question, right? Either the reading in the, te in the Decalogue or the reading in Jeremiah leaves us with the question is, well, what's a burden? If I'm not to lift a burden on the Sabbath, uh, how do I define a burden? And throughout the centuries, the group of Pharisees, right, those legal minds, the legal minds on the Hebrew Bible, put a lot of energy to this into this and we have it uh, on record we have it on record in something called the Mishnah maybe you've not heard of the Mishnah but the Mishnah is the collection of oral traditions passed down uh, by Jewish Pharisees thinkers and later the rabbis and it's really hundreds of years of the key leading rabbis trying to expound upon what they read in the Hebrew Bible and this is then is amplified again in something we call the Talmud the most complete version being what's called the Babylonian Talmud and this is not great reading but it's really important for theological purposes and for understanding the New Testament, right? That this is the background uh, to the world in which Jesus is operating. And so the Talmud, again, is this collection, uh, many volumes of a collection of the oral traditions of the Pharisees and the scribes and the rabbis. And there are many sections actually devoted to what a burden is. And so here is an example. So the section of the Talmud called the Shabbat in chapters 7 and 8. And I, again, I, I read this is from, from this long history of the rabbis. They say a burden is this. Food equal in weight to a dried fig, enough wine to mix a cup, milk enough for one swallow, oil enough to anoint a small limb, water enough to moisten an eye salve, paper enough to write a custom house notice, ink enough to write two letters, or read enough to make a pen, and so it goes. So you see what's happened here, right? That they've read in God's word, a passage like Jeremiah 17, don't carry any burdens on the Sabbath. Okay, how do we find, define a burden? Well, we need to develop an oral tradition that defines it. And you said, well, it can't be more than this, 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 and it goes on and on and on. Now, what's happened here? that they've made rules 
in order to protect the, the letter of the rules, right? So they've just this accrual uh, uh, of extra legal traditions. This is what we call man-made religion, right? That it's not in the Bible, right? It's added on to the Bible. It's a system. It's an edifice put, put on, on top of the Bible because of a certain understanding, a legalistic understanding of the law. Now, before I'm too harsh on the Pharisees, I think we're asking the question, you know, why, why would anyone do this? I mean, why would anyone choose to live this way? I mean, how onerous to think that we have to, you know, be, be so sensitive to think that I, I can only carry on, on the Lord's Day enough ink uh, to write a letter or two. You say, who's thinking about, why would I erect this system? It seems so burdensome. And I think there's actually a, a chance to say some of these Pharisees, some of these Pharisees might have been in the camp of Paul and just say they're very zealous to see God honored. I mean, if we give them the benefit of the doubt, right, we could say there could be a subset of them that's, that says, I, I, really, I really care about God's word, and this is the way we know we can't violate God's word. And in that sense, I think we, it's always hard to assess motivations, let alone ancient ones, but some of these Pharisees might have been very keen to honor God. Now, others, we say, maybe this kind of legal parsing was just a part of their identity. They said, well, I'm, you know, kind of a, the son of a Pharisee. This is what I do. And that they just, uh, in other words, saw policing these kind of matters as just who they were. Uh, as frustrating as that might be, maybe it was an identity issue for them. But still others, and you fear that this might be the case for the majority of them, the way Jesus approached them, that this was um, about control. That if they could set up this system of man-made rules and that they could enforce it and kind of look over people's shoulders and take them to task on this, that this is a way of getting people to, to, to act a certain way, and it really is maybe a power grab. But maybe those three explanations might be some way of, <laughs> towards uh, why anyone, why people who knew God's word would do these kinds of things, that the Pharisees might have been motivated in that, in that uh, vein. So I really think what this boils down to, though, is that the Pharisees have taken God's law and they've made it something destructive. That they've made it something that enslaves. So you take something that comes from God in the Decalogue, a day of rest to think about who God is, to think about who we are, to honor God, and they've made it a destructive force, even something that might, it would appear, prevent doing merciful acts. That's the section about the man with the withered hand, isn't it? They're seeing amazingly, right, that they're watching Jesus to try to catch him if he does something merciful on the Sabbath. So they've turned God's good law into something that's actually destructive, not God-honoring, not grace-filled, not mercy-filled, but actually something that's really all, in, all over us and enslaving, and this is going to beat anyone up that this man-made religion, I think, is often what people have in mind when they say, I don't need religion because it's man-made, it's onerous. And you'd be correct if we have a legalistic understanding, a pharisaical understanding of God's divine law, that their jurisprudence goes one direction, it's about the letter, it's about parsing the laws, it's about policing, and it does, it kills us on the inside, and it can't be followed. You know, the best example I have of this, and then we'll move on to the other perspective, yeah, comes from who else but William Shakespeare. Uh, some will remember back in high school watching The Merchant of Venice, right, being performed, or maybe you read The Merchant of Venice, and you remember Shylock loans a sum of money to Antonio. And the idea is that Antonio will pay the money back in full, and, or else Shylock, uh, he will demand what, remember the famous line, a pound of flesh. And at the end, you say Antonio's just a little bit late making the payment back. He makes the payment, but just does so late. And Shylock demands the pound of flesh. And Antonio's saying, right, there's a plea for mercy at the end. Shylock, be merciful because I've paid you back. And, and this, I really needed this money. Be merciful. Don't demand the pound of flesh. And it goes on this way for, for a time where there's, there's a mercy is, is uh, requested until Portia, in that famous speech, right, she actually battles Shylock with his own legalism that the famous line, remember, she says, the contract says a pound of flesh, Shylock. 
and only if you can extract a pound of flesh from his body without taking any blood because the contract says you do not require any blood and that way Antonio is freed and Shylock is defeated by his own legalism. Do you see how that works in that example? Say legalism boxes us in. That if we're always policing one another down to the little letter of the law, that ultimately we, would, we too would have to be policed that way, that we'd all be enslaved. It's a terrible way to live. And that's why legalism, the letter of the law, without understanding the spirit of the law, kills. So what about Jesus now? Moving on to his interpretation of the Sabbath. What does Jesus go to? He goes where else but to a story about David. That he goes to 1 Samuel. Notice to the irony, you've got to you know, be on the edge of your seats. You have the legal experts talking to Jesus about one of the Ten Commandments. And Jesus says, haven't you guys read the Hebrew Bible? Well, of course they had. And Jesus, to have this story spontaneously on his mind, you think of how well read he must have been in the Hebrew Bible, right? He didn't know that this objection was coming in this way. But he goes right to it, and he recalls 1 Samuel 21, again, from a time a thousand years before Jesus, going back to the time of David. 1 Samuel 21. And he says, don't you legal experts remember what David did when he was in trouble on the Sabbath? that he went into the temple and there were 12 loaves of bread there, consecrated loaves of bread. Only the priests could handle them. Only the priests could eat them. And David, because he was being hunted down by Saul, remember the story? Saul's after him and David and his men are starving. It's a Saturday. It's the Sabbath. He comes into the temple. He strikes up a conversation and David is able to eat the consecrated loaves. And this evidently is something that God approves. So Jesus again, knows the Hebrew Bible better than even the legal experts. He's saying, look, God's law of the Sabbath was never meant to be destructive. It was never meant to prevent acts of mercy. Rather, it was to be life-giving. Can't you see that's what David himself did? Now, what's really important for us now, if we can move into the realm of application today, is that Jesus does not cancel the Sabbath. You see, some people over the centuries, some Christian thinkers, have thought that's what Jesus is doing here. They say, well, here he comes in. He does whatever he wants on the Sabbath. I mean, he has his guys pluck the grain, and he heals the man's withered hand. And, you know, he makes the point of saying, David, you know, ignored the burden laws on the Sabbath. Is Jesus just canceling the Sabbath? Is he just throwing out the fourth commandment? We say, by no means. Jesus is not throwing away God's law. A lot of people think, well, now that Jesus has come, let's just get rid of the Hebrew Bible. Let's get rid of the Old Testament. I mean, after all, we, we have a New Testament. That, that old part, who needs that anymore? That's for the Jewish people. We say, that's not what Jesus does here. His issue is not with the fourth commandment. And his issue is not with the Sabbath. His issue is over the pharisaical, legalistic understanding of the Sabbath, where there have been man-made rules piled on it to abrogate the true meaning of the Sabbath, which was to be life-giving. And notice Jesus, too, right? He's very honoring of the Old Testament. Even a few weeks ago, when he healed the leper, he said, go do what the law of Moses commanded. And here he goes even to 1 Samuel to make his point that, in other words, Jesus isn't telling us, forget about the Sabbath now. It doesn't matter. Do whatever you want. Get, get rid of that part of your Bible. What he's saying is that it's been terribly misused, that there's a dispute over God's law, and in this matter of jurisprudence, the legalists are wrong, and those who understand the spirit of the Sabbath are on the right track. That really the Sabbath and all the Old Testament point us to Jesus. And I think all of us need to work hard these days to have a good grasp of this. You know, a lot of questions could come, and they do come. You say, well, how does the Bible all fit together? I mean, you have this particular group of the ethnic Jews, and how does that relate to us in Avon today? We have to have a few sentences to say when people ask us that. You know, when I think it's very good when we bring our physical Bibles to church, not just because we like books, but rather this is where we have what we call a canon, a closed set of Scripture, right, that it all relates uh, together. 
that the Hebrew Bible and the Old Testament point us towards Jesus, right? It's all from the same God, the true God, the creator God, that all of it is his, is his word and it works together in one smooth seam. That's the point. That's what we need to gather here. How many times even in Luke's gospel has Jesus said, look at how it's written here and now it's being fulfilled, that you have it written in the, in the Old Testament, the Hebrew Bible, now Jesus is fulfilling it. The main point, right, is that Jesus is not canceling the Sabbath. He's not canceling God's law. He's trying to help us understand the Spirit. And in order to do this in our text, right, what he does wonderfully is a man there who had a very deformed hand, a withered hand, and Jesus sets the stage. He has the man come stand in the middle, doesn't he? He pauses. He looks around at them. You see, he's kind of building it up. And you can imagine what he did. They're actually going to see whether he does something merciful. And with just a short word, really a stretch out of the hand, so easy for Jesus, this man's hand is healed. Jesus wants us to see that God's law, his gracious gift of the law, and his gracious gift of the Sabbath, is really to be life-giving rather than life-taking. It's to be used for good, for grace, for mercy, not for evil and enslavement. And those are two different conceptions of God's law. Now, know here we're talking about the Sabbath, and since the Sabbath is upheld by Jesus and not canceled, that we need to recapture a theology of rest, that our culture is so very busy. And when you think about it, you say this notion of the Sabbath rest is everywhere in the Bible. Uh, one day out of seven in our culture, it's a Sunday that this, again, for the Jews of Jesus' time would have been a Saturday, and very fascinating that it's been moved to a Sunday. Um, and how that happened, I think, is a strong case for the resurrection. Say, how does a group of Jewish people, as all of Jesus' first followers were Jews, how do they move their Sabbath from a Saturday to a Sunday? Well, in all likelihood, what we learn from the early church fathers is that this is to be in honor of the day that Jesus was raised from the dead. And so why do we see this theme in Scripture? I'll just try to paint this picture quickly. But you notice in the first few pages of the Bible uh, that we get this pattern of six days of work and one of rest. God creates everything in six days, and we're told on the seventh day he rests. Now, why did God do that? Say, I'm sure no one here actually thinks God needed to rest, as if he was fatigued, that uh, after six days of labor, he was spent, and he needed to rest. Say, no one thinks that, right? God's omnipotent. He's all-powerful. He doesn't get tired. He doesn't sleep. He doesn't get fatigued. He doesn't have a system that gets run down. So why is it there? Well, it's there for our benefit. That laid down in the created order is this pattern of six and one. And then it's taken up, as we said, in the Decalogue, which I've already read. So the fourth of the Ten Commandments, it's there. There should be one day in seven, the Sabbath, that we should rest and think about God, to set it apart, to understand our position, to understand who God is. And that, too, is connected to creation. It's in the Psalms. The ancient hymns, which we studied not that long ago, Psalm 127, has a wonderful passage on sleep. And it says, sleep is a good gift from God. You know, I often think about all the things every person has in common. And isn't it interesting that all of us need to sleep? When you really take a step back and think about that, so 7 billion or 7.5 billion, however many human beings there are on the face of the planet, that all of us... Uh, stop thinking clearly after we're up about 17 to 20 hours. Uh, there's a reason why when we're interrogating people that we use sleep deprivation, that not many humans can be sleep deprived very long, that we begin to lose our mental faculties, say, if that doesn't show our limitations, I don't know what does. I mean, isn't that fascinating? After about 16 hours of being awake and just running my small little life, I, I need to rest and I need to take it easy. How different from God? That's what Psalm 127 is saying. Look, we're limited creatures. We're weak. We're dependent. Rest is a good gift from God. Jesus, incarnate a man, a son of God, rested. He withdrew. I just chose how many times you can look through the Gospels, these biographies of Jesus, and see how often that he rested. Just in Luke 5, 16, right? He often withdrew. He would withdraw to desolate places and pray. He would withdraw to think about God. He practiced 
rest. It's built into who we are. It's taken up in the book of Hebrews, right, where rest is compared to God's salvation. And we could even go so far, as we read another psalm, as to think that my refusal to rest might have something to do with my pride. You know, how many of us say, well, I can't rest. I'm way too important. Uh, My work needs me. If I don't get to that now, if I don't work seven days out of seven, the whole thing's going to crumble. You say there's a side there that that, um, is is a bit prideful. They say, isn't it more God-honoring? And for all the reasons we just saw, to say something like this, I'm I'm very weak, and I have my limits, and I need rest. And rest is a good thing from God. And the Sabbath is a good gift from God. That I want to set time aside in our culture usually a Sunday, to set time aside to devote my mind and my energies and my emotions to thinking about who God is and who I am. Jesus did not cancel the Sabbath here. Rather, what he does is he tries to show us that this is a good gift flowing right through the Bible, that really it's about grace. And this is where I'll wind down. Can you see then that these different conceptions of the law, what was the Pharisaical idea of the law? Legalism. We need laws to protect the laws, and we're watching you for when you break the laws. This is enslaving, it's destructive, and it prevents works of mercy. Wonderfully, Jesus' conception of the law is that it's a good gift from God. It shows us who he is. It's about grace, that Jesus does the act of mercy on the Sabbath, right? God's laws are about mercy. They're about grace. And I think each Sabbath... Today, if you're watching this, is a Sabbath. There's a reason we have church on Sunday. It's our time to think about God, to slow down, to give ourselves permission not to be productive, right? And I know what you're thinking. Say, well, you know, is the, you know, he, he, uh, condoning laziness. No, of course not. We'll have other sermons about laziness. But I hope we see here that we're to slow down to think about God. It's a good gift. It's about grace. Now, if you're not a Christian and you're listening to this, I hope that, for one, maybe you've thought being a Christian is all about rules, and there is a lot of legalism in other world religions, no doubt. We we would say all the other religions are man-made, but I hope you see today that the rules and the laws of the Bible reveal the gracious character of the one true God, and that when we come to him, actually, that's the most restful place of all. That maybe you've been trying some different man-made religions and trying to manufacture your own system, or perhaps you like policing laws yourself. Say, if you're in that camp, can you see that something different's offered in Jesus? To say, I'm not going to be boxed in and enslaved by the letter of the law, but rather it's about the, the spirit behind it, who God is, mercy and grace is to be exercised, and that is extended to all who come to Jesus on his terms. And I hope if you're in that camp, you're tired, you see something new is offered here in the grace of our Savior. Now, if you are a Christian, firstly, I ask you, um, do you practice the Sabbath? And if not, why? I mean, you see it in all throughout the Bible. Is it just a matter of needing to be productive? And if so, I'd say you'd start a new pattern to say, you know, I really need to be more disciplined, if you will, to set time apart on a Sunday to think about God to rest, to think about who I am and who he is, that it's deeply biblical and I need to change my pattern. I really need to understand the the theology of the Sabbath rest. Or elsewhere, maybe you're, again, a Christian, but maybe in this passage you might feel more like a Pharisee. Say, how many of us in our Christian walks, right, we go around and say, look at how bad that person is and they're way outside of God's law and, you know, there they go, breaking God's law again. And we say, well, wait a second, who am I? most like in that scenario in our passage say i've become a pharisee say have i too easily defaulted because of my own system perhaps my own sense of comfort into the system of being a legalist is it about my own control and if so can i see here that i ought to be more gracious and merciful reflecting the spirit of the laws rather than the letter of the laws friends christianity really is uh well it's not at all a legalistic religion Say, rather, it's about a spirit-filled, grace-filled uh, way of, of uh, doing life and about behaving in God's world. So I hope that that's life-giving to you today. May we obey the spirit and the principle over the letter of the law. I'll pray. Father, thank you very much for this notion of the Sabbath, that we're actually commanded to take time 
to slow down, to slow down our labors and to think about you and to think about how gracious you've been to us and to help us to be more gracious to others, not in our own strength, but out of who you are and out of the, the life that you've given us. And Lord, may we take the example of the Pharisees clearly, not to be too harsh on them, but to say that we're, there's all, we all have a little bit of Pharisee in us where we say, well, look at this breaking the law here and breaking the law here and setting up rules to protect rules and building my system. Say, may it never be. Uh, may we honor your law, yes, but may we see the principle behind it and may that come through. So Lord, help us to rest in you, delight in you, experience your grace and pass that along while of course being obedient in the areas you want us to be obedient. For Christ's greater glory, amen. Jesus, I am resting, resting in the joy of what thou art. I am finding out the greatness of thy loving heart. Thou had fixed me gaze upon thee, and thy beauty fills thy soul. For by thy transforming power thou hast made me Oh, how great thy loving kindness, faster harder than the sea. Oh, how marvelous thy goodness, lavished all on me. Yes, I rest in thee, beloved, no one else of this is mine. No identity of promise and happiness. face upon me as I work and wait for thee resting beneath thy smile Lord Jesus first dark shadows me brightness of my father's glory sunshine on my father's face keep me ever trusting resting fill me
Psalm 131, which has the heading, I have calmed and quieted my soul. O Lord, my heart is not lifted up. My eyes are not raised too high. I do not occupy myself with things too great and too marvelous for me, but I have calmed and quieted my soul like a weaned child with its mother, like a weaned child is my soul within me. O Israel, hope in the Lord from this time forth and forevermore. May that be the case as we honor the Lord's Sabbath and capture the true spirit of it, that it is a gift from God, a gracious gift from him, that we're to exercise his mercy and grace. Now unto him who's able to keep you from stumbling and to present you before his glorious presence, faultless and with great joy, to the only God our Savior be glory, honor, dominion, and authority through all the ages, now and forevermore. Amen.